Church, I hope you're, you're rested, refreshed, raring to go after your extra hour of sleep last night. By my pastoral math, that gives us an extra hour of preaching, so we better get started. You know, that's where we were going. Turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 47. We've been walking, we're almost to the end of Genesis. We started way back almost 18 months ago, almost two years ago, actually. And we are to that section in the Genesis story um, that, that focuses on the life of Joseph and how, jo- how God orchestrated just these tragic events in Joseph's life and in the life of his father Jacob and his brothers to bring about a glorious, marvelous um, piece of his restoration and salvation. Joseph is, is kidnapped, sold into slavery. And, and we've been tracking his progress where he becomes the second most powerful man in the most powerful country in all of the world. And, and last week, we, it was finally that big reveal moment where Jacob, where Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, the brothers who betrayed him. And finally, there's a reunion with his father, Jacob, and the whole family. And, and, and Joseph wants to put his brothers to ease. And he said, look, I know you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. And so that brings us up to Genesis 47, where now finally... After decades apart, decades splintered, decades at odds with one another, Jacob's family is finally under one roof. They are finally in Egypt together. There is restoration, there's reconciliation, there's provision, there's this giant family reunion. Everybody's forgiven each other, but we have four chapters left in Genesis. What is this epilogue about? And essentially where we're going this morning is that God's given us Genesis 47 to talk about what does faithfulness for the people of God look like? Now that there's restoration and God has worked his his, his act of redemption in the lives of Jacob and his family, he has now situated them in the land. And they are asking, well, God, then how do we live? What are we to be about? What does it mean to be faithful? And let me just say that that's the question we as God's people should always be wrestling with. It's just a question that becomes much more poignant and real in a season like this, right? In an election season particularly. Now, I'm going to talk towards the end of this sermon, a little bit about the election, but, but not primarily with, it, with the idea of, of swaying your vote one way or the other or in view of how I, I think you should vote or how you're going to vote. Because as important, now listen to this, Four Oaks, as important as voting is, and many of you have already voted, by the way, come November 4th, the most important thing for the people of God is not how you voted. The most important thing for the people of God is how now shall we live and how we live and relate to the world around us, how we live and relate to, a, to the culture around us, how we live and relate to one another as the people of God. That is our pressing task. That's the pressing task for Jacob and his family and as it will be for us. And so here's what we're going to do. We're going to read Genesis chapter 47. 
I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump in. We're going to read the entire chapter. Genesis 47, so it says, So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock." Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood before him Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine." And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before our eyes for our money is gone? And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought the livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph brought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests did he not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field, and as food for yourselves and your households, and as food for your little ones." And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day. 
that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. And he answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. And Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we come to you as we do every Sunday in a posture of dependence. That we have here before us your word which is living, it is active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword. But Father, we can't conjure up power for ourselves. Only your Holy Spirit can open our eyes. Only your Holy Spirit can open our hearts. And we pray now, Lord, you would give us wisdom, insight, that we might be attentive to your word. And as your people learn and come and worship and submit ourselves to you. We ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, folks, here is the plan this morning. Here is how we're going to break it down. First of all, we're going to start with an observation, then an assessment, and thirdly, an assurance. So an observation, an assessment, and an assurance. Let's look at the observation first. If you were to sort of get a global picture of this whole chapter... Like if you were to like hop on one of those drones that, I don't know how Jackson was doing that whole fly above thing, but that was pretty cool, right? But, but if you were to sort of get a drone and fly above this chapter, I think it's pretty obvious the sort of central impression, the most obvious observation that Moses is leading us to in this chapter, and it's simply this, the people of God are being shown amazing providential favor. That, I mean, you, you throw a rock at this passage and there's going to be some way that God is smiling upon blessing his people. Now, what's astonishing about this is that these are 70 folk, 70, not even as many as are in this room right now. And these 70 folk are flourishing in the shadow of the most powerful nation on earth. Let that just settle in for a second. You know, to use a couple of sporting analogies, this is Appalachian State taking down Michigan in the big house, right? That was a shout out to all my Buckeye friends, who I see a couple of you out there. It's the number one seed and future national champion Virginia getting knocked off by the lowly number 16 seed, University of Maryland, Baltimore County. If you have the word county in your name, okay, you're an underdog, right? You get what I'm saying? But let's look at all the ways that, I mean, supernaturally, miraculously, the people of God are thriving and being shown favor in this strange land. First, we can see, and it's very obvious, God extends his favor materially, right? 
So recall Genesis 46. And remember, Joseph did the little rope-a-dope with Pharaoh. He told his brothers, hey, listen, the Egyptians hate shepherds, okay? And so the thing you definitely want to do is tell them you're a shepherd. Like, wear your costume, bring your, bring your flock into the palace, the whole thing. Because if you do that, then Pharaoh, because listen, Joseph knew his Pharaoh, did he not? He said, he's going to put you in Goshen because that's far, far away to the fringes of the country. And of course, Joseph knew this is where God's people would be protected. This is where they would be free from the influence of these pagan religions and the religion of the Egyptians. Now, what's interesting is that here in chapter 47, we see this play out. The brothers go in, Jacob takes five. We don't know why these five brothers, they shaved, they showered. We're not, we're not totally sure, right? But he, but he brings them in. They make their request. And Pharaoh, not unsurprisingly, says yes. However, not only does Pharaoh grant their request to live in the choices of land, now remember this, in a famine, not only does he grant them their request, he also gives them government jobs. Do you notice that? You can get to take care of my flock. It's like the Obi-Wan Jedi mind trick, right? Instead of these aren't the droids you're looking for, right? It's you will let us settle and you will give us jobs. And they're like, sure thing, we're right on it, right? And what's astounding is about this is that by being a part of the royal administration, see, now his family is connected. See, now his family is connected. They are connected to the administration of Pharaoh, and they are there to enjoy the privileges and protections, which would be highly unusual for anyone who was an alien in that land. And so we, we see God's favor, and look at the results of that blessing. Look at verse 11. It says, then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt. Now, listen carefully. In the best of the land. Keep reading on to verse 12. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. No, that, that, that's kind of an old Hebraic way of saying, and Moses, I mean, and Joseph and Jacob invited all their kin and a bunch of guests, and they all showed up for Thanksgiving dinner, and they all got plenty. Now, compare this to what Moses tells us immediately after in verse 13 about the Egyptians. So he's just given us this picture of amazing blessing for the people of God. And then he tells us in verse 13, rather on, on, ominously, right? Now, there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. Now, that word languished, it literally means they were wasting away. See, the Israelites had been given the best of the land, the best of the food, there were these, this tiny band of 70 folks. They were situated on both sides by Canaan, where they had just come from, and Egypt, where they had come to. Both were to be shown to be arch enemies of the purposes of God over the long haul. But here, God has got them like wrapped up in this little cocoon. He's got them stowed away like Noah and his family in the ark. So it says... Here in verse 13, as we continue the story, the, the people, meaning the Egyptians, approached Joseph. Now again, let's see the favor that's involved here. 
I mean, Joseph is a foreigner. Joseph was at one time, not that long ago, a slave. But Joseph has saved the bacon of the country time and time again. And so they are coming to Joseph and they're saying, listen, Joseph, we'll, we'll, we need food. We need seed. And so it says um, in sequence here, first of all, they paid money for seed. And then they were out of their money. They paid livestock for their feed or their, or their, or their seed. And then they finally gave up their land and finally their servitude. And they essentially were what we would call serfs. They, Pharaoh owned everything. And they had to pay Pharaoh the privilege of farming their own land, giving Pharaoh a 20% tax. Now, if this seems draconian, if this seems cruel, I want you to consider a couple of things. Moses' point in this story is not to give us an economics lesson. He's not to hold up a model for how we should govern. That's not his point. First of all, Moses wants us to note in verse 19, it's the people's idea to do this, by the way, verse 19. They're the ones that approached Joseph. But number two, verse 25, their situation was so precarious. It says in verse 25, they were just thankful to be alive. They thanked and blessed Joseph. They understood that Joseph's labors and his, his work on their behalf had prepared them and had saved them one more time. And again, God is, Moses is just showing us what favor what blessing the people of God have here. Now, let me, let me say this, lest we get ahead of ourselves. The point of all this is not, please, please hear me carefully, church, is not God promises material blessing or material favor if we simply follow him. That's not the point. And the reason I say that is that we just have to continue on into Exodus when there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph, right? And we're going to find out that the people of God in their, their favored status transforms very quickly, doesn't it? They are mistreated. They are abused. They are enslaved. The point that Moses is wanting to make for us here is that God is preserving his people. God is faithful to build his people into a nation. And, and, and hopefully you see immediately where we're going to be going with this, right? Guys, God promises to build his church. Sometimes the people of God will be held in high favor. Sometimes they will be hauled off to the gulag. But the point is, is that whether it's in good or in plenty, God is in the business of preserving his people. God is in the business of building his church. Now listen, regardless of what's happening politically, regardless of what's happening culturally, regardless of what's happening in the larger society at large, see, and this is where the second place we want to see God's blessing to them. See, God's favor to them in this passage is not just material, although there is that, but most importantly, it's spiritual. Look at verse 7 for a second. Something very strange happens here. It says that Jacob is brought into the presence of Pharaoh. 
And you can just sort of tell that Jacob is not all that impressed with what's going on, right? Jacob's been around the block a couple of times. And it says here that Jacob starts off by blessing Pharaoh. And the reason that's astounding is that typically it's the superior that blesses the inferior, right? Okay, you go to the priest for a blessing. I, I remember when I was very little, my uncle Elbert, um, every time we would go over to his house, and I still remember the smell, it was, it was musky up in there, right? And every time we would go see Uncle Elbert, we would always go to him, and the cultural equivalent of the blessing was that he would give us a quarter, right? And he would always say the same thing, now go buy yourself an ice cream cone. Now listen, it was 1974, but even then I knew that ain't buying no ice cream cone, right? Okay which is why I started going to my grandfather instead, who gave me $20 bills. It was wonderful. Well, when Pharaoh invites Jacob in, it's interesting he asks him about his age. Now, what is that about? See, Egyptians idolized age. Egyptians were fixated on death. Now, if you don't, if, you don't have to read the Bible to know this, right? You know this from the study of antiquity in terms of all of, the, of the, the burial rites and the mummification and the embalming procedures and how the afterlife, it was, it was a point of obsession. Egyptians were terrified of death. And so Pharaoh is looking at Joseph and realizing, because most Egyptians aren't living to be 130 years old. And he's looking at Joseph or Jacob and saying, T -t tell me, how, how, how old are you? In other words, he, he's making a note of like, there is some sort of supernatural blessing upon this man. And by doing this and by being blessed, what is happening, I think, God, as Moses is showing us, is that God is giving not just material favor, but spiritual favor to the people of God in this strange land. Pharaoh is acknowledging the superiority of the God of the Israelites over anything else that the Egyptian culture had to offer. And by the way, this has been a running theme, right? Recall, remember when Joseph was in Pharaoh's court and none of the court magicians could provide the interpretation. And what does, what does Joseph say? What is, remember how Joseph just gives it to him and he says, it's not me who's going to give you the interpretation, Pharaoh. It's, it's God. God gives the interpretations. And so what we see is that all of this has kind of come full circle. And so now it's not Pharaoh holding court with Jacob, right? Jacob is holding court with Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. He is secure he has royalty flowing through his blood. He is incredibly powerful, yet 100% dependent upon Jacob for his blessing. Because Jacob worships the sovereign God, Yahweh, the one who is creator over all. Now, when we look at all this favor, when we look at how God is blessing his people, the Israelites, materially, and physically, and most importantly, spiritually, what are we, how are we supposed to assess that? 
What, what are we supposed to do with that? What, how is that to inform us in the way that we live? And, and let's look at what assessment Jacob provides, point number two. As I said before, it's safe to say Jacob is not overly impressed with this whole scene. Now understand something, he's not ungrateful. That's not what we mean. It's not that Jacob is ungrateful. He's just very sober-minded in light of the bigger picture, in light of the promises that God has already made. And look in verse 9, he makes a very telling statement to Pharaoh in light of all this. Verse 9, he says, my days have been few and my days have been evil. Now, what a strange thing to say to someone who is showering all this sort of material favor and blessing from you. Now, what, 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 is, what is Jacob really saying there? See, this is a recognition, I think, from Jacob before Pharaoh that, you know, ultimately, Pharaoh, I'm, I'm thankful for your favor, but it's not the most important thing. This life is not the most important thing. There are bigger things, Pharaoh, in this life for God's people than being comfortable because I've been anything but comfortable in my life. I mean, when you think about the story of Jacob compared to all the rest of the patriarchs, it is by far, and we know this because we've journeyed through this book, it's been the hardest of them all. The betrayals, the, the deception, the hard work, the forced labor, the running away from home, his own brother wanting to, to murder him. And so when Jacob speaks the way he does in verse 9, he speaks truly. But he's recognizing, he, and he understands coming to the point of this end of his life. And, and you understand this, right? For those, the older you get, see, the more perspective you have, about what is really important. See, as, as and, and not to be morbid this morning, but as we approach every single day closer to our death than we were the day before, there's something about that process that awakens us. There's something about that process that pricks our heart. There's something about that process that makes us spiritually self-aware. And for Jacob, He's not swayed by all this because he knows Egypt is not the permanent home of God's people. See, th th this is why Jacob gives Joseph such explicit instructions and in charge to take his body back to Canaan. We're going to read about this next week. It's not because Jacob was morbid. It's not because Jacob was superstitious. This was an act of faith. This was Jacob declaring to his people, to his sons, to his descendants. And as we're going to see next week, even a declaration to all of Pharaoh and all of his royal court that Egypt is not my home. I am trusting God and the people of God are trusting God for a better promise, a, a better land. In other words, Jacob doesn't place his hope and this is so important for us folks, please hear. Jacob does not place his faith and his hope in the favor given him or in the favor not given him. He places his hope and his faith in the promises 
of God. One very wise pastor said this. I'm quoting him, and it's me. Here we go. Okay, I had to put this on the, on the screen some way. Whatever favor, maybe it's not going to make it on the screen. It probably wasn't worthy. Whatever favor we find in this life is meant not to give us security in this life. Rather, God's favor is meant to mobilize us for mission, for witness, and for blessing others. See, favor in this life is not to be sought as something in and of itself. Sometimes God gives it, sometimes God doesn't. But if God does grant it, it's so that we will be a blessing to others. It's not about us. I want you to think about the way that Jacob and his family postured themselves through all this. What did faithfulness look like? They watched the herds. They served the people around them. They were a separate, distinct people. They, they worshiped God. They offered sacrifices. They taught their children. They labored for the good of the land. They labored for the good of the Egyptians. They stayed faithful on mission, serving others. Now, let me just say something, and you've heard me say things like this before. One of, one of the things that I think is unfortunate and it really just reveals something of the nature of our hearts, doesn't it? One of the things, unfortunate things of these past eight months, and you know this, is just how absolutely polarized not just the culture is, but let's be honest, the body of Christ is. So much anger, so much angst, so much anxiety. And this happens, see, when, when God's people aren't gathering like they normally do, when God's people are not coming together and sitting under the word, when, when God's people aren't having one another to encourage one another, to spur one another on to love and good deeds as we have had in days past, it's just very natural that the arc of our lives will begin to turn inward. Everything in our lives will begin to orbit around us. Everything will be evaluated or tended to be evaluated about how it affects me. We become absorbed in my opinion, my, per, my take, my perspective. And when that mindset, church, gets its hooks into the people of God, I think Jesus put it this way, when, a salt, when salt loses its saltiness, it's only good for being thrown out on the ground. Which is why in seasons like this, we need an assurance. This is our last point. Here's the assurance. I think it's written in the pages of Scripture from start to finish. And I think it's written on the pages of history from start to finish. But here it is, simply put. Spiritual flourishing for the people of God is not a function of who is in power. See, while they had favor with this Pharaoh there would arise another Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. In fact, as the nation, we're going to fast forward 400 years, by the way, God's people are still prospering. They're still prospering to 2 million strong. God has built them. God has protected them. They are serving. They are on mission. But boy, they're no longer held in favor, right? They are enslaved. They are persecuted. They are 
Um, they are captives in this strange land. They are, they're, the Egyptians are, are lording it over them. The Egyptians turn on them vociferously. But the lesson for us as the people of God, whether it's a Pharaoh that remembers Joseph or whether it's a Pharaoh that doesn't remember Joseph, spiritual flourishing for the people of God is never a function of who's in charge. And guys, what a great reminder as we watch the results come in this Tuesday night. You know, Susan and I were were driving around the other day and we were just remarking about how, how weird this season is, right? Where we have faithful Christians who are praying for a variety of outcomes. And it's interesting because everybody is firmly convinced that they are right. I mean, it's a little like the Civil War, right? Brother against brother, Christians praying on both sides and having their strong convictions. And I think there's, there's fundamentally three groups of people, and I, I just want to speak to them. And, and these are, speak to all of us. And this is really meant more towards not who are you voting for or how will you have voted, but again, how we are called to live together as the people of God. There, there's, 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 there's three sort of groups, I would generally say, probably mostly represented here and in the broader evangelical church. And, and I've picked a popular author and teacher who I think represents each of these views so that if you get mad, you can get mad at one of them, right? And not me. And these are all men from the same theological tribe, same confession, same theological perspective as us. And, and the first one is, is, is John Piper. And you may have seen the article that he recently wrote, been circulating around, And it was really his heartfelt conviction about why he won't be voting for either major political candidate this go-around. For him, the the character flaws of both of the men who are running, the policies of the party in opposition, um, really preclude him from voting at all for either of these men. And, And he makes a persuasive case that that when it comes to character, we cannot so easily dismiss character. We can't act like it doesn't matter what a person, what, who a person is, we watch what policies they implement. And he just says that's, that's naive because when someone is leading a country, their philosophy, their worldview, their who they are seeps down into the very character of the nation. And, and I know there's some of you who are, who are in that place. There's another position articulated by a man named Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern Seminary. And he acknowledges the character deficiencies of the incumbent, but believes that the policies and laws he represents, as opposed to the other party, are far superior biblically in terms of its worldview, in terms of the truth of what it wants to do and implement. And and he's very clear just as John Piper is very clear in saying, I'm not voting for either, Dr. Mueller says, I, I'm voting for the incumbent. Not because of I, I approve of everything about him, but because I believe he will implement the policies that will be for the good of the church and the country. Well, finally, there's a third position. And by the way, that second position, many of you are part of that, part of that group. 
There's a third position by Pastor Tabidi. I'm not even going to try to pronounce his last name. He's an African-American pastor, a great brother, part of the Gospel Coalition, planted a church in the inner city of D.C., wrote an article in 2016, and I think his, this perspective is still probably where he is right now, talking about why he was going to be voting for the opposing party. While acknowledging the, the policy issues, while acknowledging the, the pro-life issues that are so important for so many of us, he really talked about the historical view of politics, the historical role, race issues, social issues. And for him, his conscience dictated, while there's certain policies for this party that I, you know, are odious to me, taken on the whole, I think these set of policies are better for the country than the other. And so he is, he's voting for the opposition. Now, let me say a few things about this. We have people who are part of all three groups in this church. And, and I want to be very clear as your pastor, we are not theological relativists. I, I personally do not believe all of these positions are equally valid. Okay, I, I'm, I'm not just like, let's sing kumbaya and get along. That, that's not where this is going. As a Christian and as a private citizen, I have very strong thoughts and opinions about these things, as do you. However, I am a pastor to people in all three groups. And guess what? And here's what I want to really press on you. You are a brother and sister in Christ to people who are in all three groups. Which means... I believe it is a mistake to put relational, emotional distance between yourselves and others who think differently than you or who have different convictions of you or find themselves in one of these other two groups that you are not a part of. I think it's a mistake to remove yourself from fellowship with them. Because what we're saying when we do that, church, whether we think we're saying, whether we're, we, we acknowledge that we're saying it or not, what we're saying is that our, our fundamental foundational identity of people lies not with Jesus and the gospel, but it lies with political and social realities. And because our most fundamental and foundational identity as Christians is in Jesus, is in the gospel, guys, the gospel is big enough for all three groups. And I don't say that as a point of theological relativism. I say this as a point of what, are these things going to be a test of orthodoxy for us? Are these things going to be a test for inclusion into the body of Christ? And when we make them so, we situate something else as primary instead of the gospel. And if you say, oh, Pastor Paul, that, that all sounds great but I got to go pull the lever for somebody and, and we're just not on the same page and nobody's on the same page. And, and if that's where you are, let me just say, please church, don't underestimate the gospel. See, God has called us out as his people to be a blessing to the world, to be a witness. As John Piper says in his article, there's going to be a day when America, just like every other country and empire that has ever come before it, is going to be a tiny little footnote in the annals of God's kingdom in history. 
What our culture desperately needs, whoever is elected, whoever is not elected, is a unified gospel witness from the people of God. From people who understand that they have been given spiritual favor in Jesus Christ in order to be a blessing to people who desperately need Jesus Christ. But that's never going to happen apart from the unified witness of God's people to his truth. Paul reminds us of this so well in Galatians chapter 3. He says, for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Brooks, where is your fundamental foundational identity? And I think what Genesis 47 does, it wants to bring us back to that place over and over again that just like Jacob, we can say our days have been evil, our days have been long. We've been sojourners all of our life. That's okay, Pharaoh. Favor today, no favor tomorrow. It doesn't change the fact that we are not citizens of this land. We are sojourners, we are strangers, we are exiles, and we are not putting our hope in a man or a woman or a political party or as important in in one sense as all of those things are. In a particular electoral outcome, we are putting our hope in the sovereign promises of God. And we are asking him to give us favor, not so that we have comfortable lives, so that we can, though, be a blessing to those who are around us. Church, as we come to the table this morning, just how appropriate it is that we are acting out a parable here. Not only are we one in Christ, but we are one with each other because of Jesus who's removed the barriers, who's taken down the dividing wall of hostility, not just between us and God and him, but between us and one another. And let us never let anything but the gospel be more important in our lives in unifying our hearts to him and to each other. So let's pray.